I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author, actor, and screenwriter Michael Ian Black. His uh, new book is A Better Man, and in quotations, mostly serious letter, letter to my son. Raising an admirable son in the era of the angry white male, marked by school shootings and gun violence, Me Too outrage, and wider acknowledgement of complex gender issues is challenging. Offering a thoughtful and personal appraisal of the complicated meaning of masculinity in our time, Michael Ian Black tackles these topics with characteristic humor and a respectful grace. As he writes to his son, getting ready to leave for college, he recalls the day his son arrived in the world and the thicket of emotions that accompanied that arrival. Based on both personal experience and thoughtful observation of the rapid changes that are taking place in our society, he searches for the best way for his son to navigate these changes and become a more evolved man than the majority of those men who have come before him. Uh, Ian Black is a multimedia talent who starred in numerous films, TV series. He's written, directed two films, prolific author, as I said before, and commentator, and regularly tours the country performing his rival brand of jokes and observations. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Michael. Well, thank you, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I must say I did enjoy your book. Uh, Before I actually read it, I was saying, well, okay, now this is a letter to your son, uh, Elijah, to, uh, you know, you're sending him off to college and hoping to help him so he will become a better man. But I have three sons, three grandsons and two brothers, an ex-husband and a boyfriend. So my experiences with all with men, my close experiences, and I'm thinking, is it too late? He's already 18. What have you been doing during the interim before he goes to college? Uh, And you bring up a (laughs) lot of, (laughs) what do you use, toxic masculine issues. Uh, So, can we start with that? Because there is, you know, we're starting the book at 18, although you do, you go back and talk about your you know, history and when he was born and getting married and all those kinds of things. But what happens along the way? Well, life happens along the way. 18 years um, happens along the way. And every experience that he has and all the choices that he's made up to this point um, but that phrase, a better man, isn't really, it's not only directed at him at 18, it's directed at myself as well at 49. Um, it's the idea that we're not just, we, we, we don't achieve like a, a level of perfection or there's no end point there. It's, it's a journey that every single one of us, male or female, is on to become better um, day by day by day. And sometimes we succeed and sometimes we don't and sometimes we fall on our faces. But the goal uh, remains the same, to always be progressing and always trying to make ourselves better. You talk about in the book you know, like traditional masculinity. Like what and and what um, and how that has evolved, and then what we define now as traditional masculinity. It has changed over in generations. Your parents, your father, for instance, uh, you, your son. Things have evolved and have changed. So let's start with that. The traditional masculinity. What is what is the definition of that? What do we think of when we think of traditional masculinity, like Donald what, Trump or Joe Biden? The, uh, sure. One of the odd things about masculinity, 
or being a man, I should say, is that we have a hard time defining it and really understanding what that means. And so I try to break it down um, for my son and really for myself to kind of understand what we mean when we say, you know, acting like a man or being a man. Um, and the, 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 the simplest definition that I come up with for what a man's function is, is to provide and protect. That is traditionally what men do. That is sort of our historical place. We um, protect the family, the tribe, the city, the nation, whatever it is, and we provide for the people in our care. That's like the most basic, I think, traditional understanding of manhood. But what happens when, um, as over the last however many years, and first of all, let me just say, like, that has never been true entirely. I mean, women have always provided for and protected. Women have always done that job as well. Um, But in recent decades, what's happened is we've seen that Feminism has given women the ability to reach out into the world in ways that they weren't able to for generations before this, um, so that their roles in the culture have changed. That's been great for the culture in general, but it has left some men wondering, well, if women are also doing the job that I thought I was supposed to do, well, what's my job? Um, that's sort of where the, the rub is, I think, in uh, current understanding of, for some men about what, their, what masculinity is. And there are certain attributes that go along with traditional masculinity, such as strength, independence, fortitude. Um, but now we see that women are also being celebrated for their strength and their independence and fortitude. And so, again, you have a certain segment of men and maybe men in general kind of wondering like, all right, well, if women can be strong and we celebrate that and women are independent, we celebrate that and women uh, have endurance and grit and we celebrate that. Like what makes me distinct from them? And that's kind of what I think a lot of guys are wrestling with these days. Well, you're in a specific, you're in a certain generation. You talk about your father, what well, he died when you were 11, 13 and then you, your son. So you're in the, middle of that evolution. So where do you fit into the picture that you just described? Where you personally? In terms of what? I mean, in terms of the traditional male versus say your son, who's 18, who's in a different place. I would. Oh, I see what you're asking. Yeah. You mean, I I think you mean generationally. Um, You know, I grew up in, uh, at the tail end of what most people think about as sort of like the height of the feminist movement, my mom and her partner, my mom was gay and her partner uh, were involved in that movement to some extent. And I grew up believing myself to be a kind of, you know, left-wing progressive feminist. Um, but that also didn't quite feel complete to me. Because as I got older, I sort of felt like the way I think maybe a lot of guys feel, which is feeling confused about whether in being like 
uh, a progressive, whether I needed to reject what I used to think of as, or what I still think of as, I guess, traditional masculinity. Do I need to sort of reinvent what it means to be a guy? And that caused a lot of consternation for me, just in terms of like understanding myself as a dude. Like, am I, if I consider myself to be a modern guy, do I have to reject everything that came before me? And I really struggled with that. Um, and the answer that I eventually came up with is no, not at all. And sometimes I feel like we reject out of hand the positive aspects of traditional masculinity in favor of some sort of nebulous masculine goal. And so what I'm trying to do in my generation and with my son is help him, help myself, first of all, and help him expand the notion of masculinity rather than redefine it. Yeah, I think that's really well said, expanding the notion of masculinity, because I think we do get into this either or. Well, you're not traditional, so now you are a feminist, but there's a lot uh, there's a lot in between, and there's a lot of emotional stuff in between. Obviously, I think one of the things mm-hmm. that you talk about in the book is vulnerability and that men don't really have an outlet for their vulnerability. So uh, tell, I, I think that's true. They're just kind of, no matter which generation you're in, they are still stuck in that being vulnerable means being weak, being not the provider, not being able to take care of myself or my family or perform at work. So that whole issue, I think, of vulnerability and men is still something that, uh, as a culture, we're wrestling with and as individuals, obviously. Yeah, and vulnerability, I think, is, I think we can think of it as a kind of um, opportunity. So one of the things that, one of the traditional ways that men are raised is to erect strong defenses around ourselves because we're required in a lot of ways to show strength at all times. Um, There's, you know, sort of good historical reasons for this. Men were raised to be soldiers, more or less. Like, that's kind of how we raised men, to go out and compete in the world, whether literally militarily or kind of become economic warriors or what have you. And so anytime we lowered those defenses, there was the fear that we would be seen as less than men because we were sort of exposing ourselves or exposing our flanks. and You could be hurt, injured, or, you know, kind of psychically killed if you did that. Um, that's, that's a pretty traditional view of masculinity. But I, but what I'm saying to myself and to my son is that the strength that you have, that you've learned to have as a guy is also an opportunity because it requires a lot of strength, I think, to lower your defenses. You know, it's like the boxer in a ring who's so confident that he can lower his fist as the other boxer is approaching him um, because he knows he's not going to be taken down. That's the way I think of like our vulnerability. If you have enough strength to lower your fist, and say, I need help, I, 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 I'm hurting here, you're giving yourself an opportunity to be kind of a fuller human. And the other thing that you're doing is giving the people around you an opportunity to give you their love, which is so often what people in men's lives want to do, but often aren't allowed to do it. 
Do you think, Justin, I'm getting back to you and your relationship, because this is obviously a very personal letter to your son. In terms of your wife, when you, and I'm making the assumption you have been evolving, how, has that, how does that affect your marriage in a personal way, in a good way? Opening up, being well, vulnerable, allowing yourself to be loved or helped or whatever the situation is. I think any time that any of us allow ourselves to be vulnerable, vulnerable, to be open, to be communicative, that can only help the relationship. Now, keep in mind, like, I screw up all the time. Like, I'm not immune from any of this stuff. Like, I'm often closed off. I'm often non-communicative. You know, my instinct, like a lot of guys, is to withdraw when I'm feeling upset or hurt or you know, vulnerable. So for me, like the journey remains, like I'm constantly having to remind myself to do these things, um, to listen, to communicate. Um, but when I do, when I am able to do that stuff, like, yeah, it's really helpful. Um, my marriage is no better or worse than anybody else's. My relationship with my kids is no better or worse than anybody else's. It's the only difference I would say for me right now is that um, I've spent a lot of time mulling this stuff over and trying to put it into practice, but it doesn't mean I succeed far from it. Like I'm often the first guy to screw up. So you have to be diligent. Like you talk about being vulnerable. You have two choices. You you just touched on one of them. You can withdraw or get angry. And you see that in a lot of men uh, when they feel vulnerable, they, they do those they see or they feel are their only two choices and that they're, um, and, and respond that way. Those are the two options that were given, um, to us as boys, you know, when it starts, when we're really young, when you start crying and somebody tells you to man up, when you, um, have something to express, it's often socially acceptable. Only uh, the only socially acceptable outlet for us is either anger or withdrawal. Even joy, I think, is, is you know, a tenuous thing for men to express. If you um, look at the studies that have shown that, like, women tend to smile and laugh a lot more than men. Uh, it's the same thing, you know, just any sort of expression is a little bit dangerous for guys unless it's anchor or withdrawal. Um so it's stuff we have to work on. And I think that's true. If you see people that, or you at, a, at a, an event where something happy is happening, a, a wedding, a party, women jump up and down, oh, they yeah. hug each other, they scream, they yell, they cry. They might not even know the woman they're hugging or the, you know, they're just, that's just, they let their emotions out. And men usually kind of stand by a little bit standoffish. You don't see a man usually jumping up and showing his happiness or delight or excitement in the same way that women do. No, and oddly, the one arena that men are allowed to do that unreservedly is sports. As a sports fan, men are allowed to express everything, and they do, you know? And so we talk about men as being detached or unemotional or any of that. Well, you know, put a football fan in front of the screen, you know, during a playoff game and see how reserved and unemotional they are. They're, we're just like women. We have full spectrum emotions and yet we don't feel like we have the space in the culture to express those. 
in the same way that women can. Um, it's, it's, it is a throwback to the way that masculinity has always been defined. And we have to, we feel like we have to be stoic. We feel like we have to be invulnerable, um, to be considered men. And, and you talk about women because this kind of, um, goes, I guess, side by side with what you just said. You say that, and I really think this is an important point that you make, women uh, have a nuanced set of social skills, and I think that's true, um, that they deal with negotiation, cooperation, persuasion, and they use these skills on a daily basis where men are much more restricted in, in terms of the kinds of, of which we've been talking about, behaviors that they, they're able to um, to, to, to do or to show, whether it's with a family or business or friends or whatever. But I think these are the things that really help women get by the negotiation, as you say, cooperation and persuasion, real important. And the women does, you know, have the experience, I think, too, just culturally having to do this with their children at a very early age, which maybe men traditionally have not had that, those same kinds of experiences. Yeah, I would argue, I guess, that the reason women have become so adept at all of these different communication tactics is because first and foremost, they had to navigate their way through the world of men. I mean, if the dominant force in the culture is one half of the population and you happen to fit into the other half, then you have to figure out different ways to get your way, um, among the, the, the dominant force and you can't do it through sheer physical strength because men tend to be stronger. Um, you can't do it through, uh, you know, taking it to the courts metaphorically or literally because men control those systems of power. So what you have to do is figure out creative ways to negotiate, um, to compromise to work with, to use, uh, you know, all the tools in your toolbox to move your life forward and the life forward of the people you care about. Men haven't had to develop those social skills in the same way because we've been the dominant force for so long. But now that is no longer true. Women are rising in the culture in rapid, uh, unprecedented ways, which is fabulous. But now men have to figure out the same tools that women have had for millennia um, to deal with them and with each other. And that's a good thing, by the way. It's, 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 it's a great thing because those tools that, that we're describing happen to be a lot more productive than the kind of brute force, whether it's through, you know, muscles or, or power structures that, that we've traditionally used. They're just better tools for people. Yeah, I, I think that's, a, and a good example of that is, I think, is as people age and get older, and when women are left alone and they are uh, widows, uh, they tend to do much better than men utilizing those skills because they're used to utilizing the skills that you just discussed. And men don't do very well if they don't have someone actually to take care of them when they are maybe physically weaker and not as strong and not working. Um, and so and the as, as people age, um, I'm a social worker, as you know, that's what the name of the show is. But uh, yeah, you see that women really begin to shine and live longer than men, and maybe because of that, who knows? But um, 
those are the skills that really carry you through. Well, I mean, that's interesting. I really don't know anything about that world. Um, but it certainly doesn't surprise me to hear you say that. It makes a lot of sense intuitively for me. Let's talk about, you talk about men, um, the, well, the definition, we're sort of going on, a real, what, a real man, a real man wins, a real man has to win. I think that's still true, even in, in this generation, even in your son's generation at 18. Mm-hmm. Real men win the game. They, they win. Mm-hmm. And you, if you don't win the game, you're not a real man. Um, yeah, and so I think that is true because we're raised to be kind of competitive with the world, with ourselves, with each other. But what's the question that I think is raised um, almost indirectly by that statement, which I think is rarely asked, which is what are we winning? Like what, when, when a man wins, what does that mean exactly? It doesn't mean that you're getting the promotion? Does it mean that you're uh, buying the fastest car, living in the biggest house, or you have the hottest wife, or whatever it is? Like, what exactly are you winning? And what exactly is the goal? Um, it's, a, it's just sort of understood in our culture in particular, like, the game is accumulation. The game is more, more, more. And what we find, what we're finding, is that Men are depressed. Men are upset. Men are withdrawn, you know, for, and I think part of the reason is because, first of all, the game feels unwinnable. Whatever success we have is so temporary. We won the game in that moment, and then immediately, seconds later, we understand that there's a new game we're supposed to win. So what I would say is, Let's redefine what the game is. Let's redefine what winning means. And one way to do that, and the example I use in the book is, we say to boys, we say it to girls too, but, but, but it, it has, a, it has a, I think, a, a harder resonance with boys. We ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because we understand that we're setting the rules for the game that they're going to play. Um, what do you want to be when you grow up? Nobody ever asks, children of either sex, what, what do you think will make you happy when you grow up? Those two questions are assumed to be the same, but they're really not. They're related but different questions. And this isn't an argument to say, well, you should just follow your passions. Um, you should just, if you want to be a poet, be a poet. That's, I'm not really making that argument. But what I'm saying is, find things in your life. Find things that give you joy and understand that if you can find that joy, that's how you win the game. Um, and that joy, when you find it, that's much harder to take away than the house, the car, the trophy wife, whatever it is that you think winning the game means, the promotion, the corner office. I've known so many people, you know, my, you know, my own business and show business, you know, I have the opportunity to know people who are um, very successful some of them very rich, some of them very famous. But that, in my experience, does not correlate at all with their being happy. I've known some really rich and famous un- and unhappy people in my life. Uh, and I don't want to be that. And I don't want my son to be that. The only thing that matters in that equation 
is the happy part. We That's have to end on that because we only have a minute left. So it's a good, it's, it's really a good note to end on. The happy part is what counts. And many of these people that you're talking about not only are unhappy, but are miserable. Uh, one, we have one minute left. Uh, just, I just hope women, and I, I recommend this, your book to everyone. It's great. Uh, a Better Man, uh, Mostly Serious Letter to My Son. Uh, I've been talking to Michael Ian Black. I hope women don't end up uh, trying to be more like men and end up with exactly the same issues that you're talking about. So I think it's just as important for women to read the book um, as it is men. Um, thanks. Uh, just give us a, a website we can go to to purchase the book because there are, I guess, lots of different places. I read it on an e-book. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, you could go to the big Internet retailers or like Amazon or, or Barnes & Noble or whatever, but I would encourage people to go to bookshop.org, which is a um, – it's that, that supports independent bookstores. It's a block of independent bookstores that work together to compete with the bigger online retailers. So if you're interested, yeah, bookshop.org is the best way to get it. Great. Thanks so much, Michael Ian Black. Catherine, thank you so much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 